Hello and welcome to the Max Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by, by Natasha Swainston, Museum Archivist for the National Army Museum. Hi Natasha, would you like to introduce, introduce yourself and talk about how you came to be where you are today? So yeah, hi, I am Natasha Swainston and I'm the Museum Archivist at the National Army Museum. Um, so I've been working in the archive sector for around six years now. started my career as an archive assistant at the Churchill Archive Centre in Cambridge. Um, this was a really great introduction into the sector, actually, and is what really encouraged me to, to pursue a career in archives. I think it's because the, of the range, it kind of showed me the range of tasks and projects involved with working in archives and all the possible opportunities um, that came from working in the sector, such as I got to work in the reading room, answer inquiries, uh, box list, uh, some amazing collections whilst I was there, do a bit of uh, repackaging and conservation work, courier trips, creating displays, giving tours. Um, and actually during my time there, um, a colleague and myself were responsible for launching the archives Twitter account, which is something I've always been quite proud of as kind of like something I did I did in my in my three years there so also during my time at Churchill I completed my postgraduate diploma at UCL and I did that on a part-time basis which I found really useful um, because it allowed me to both study and um, learn the kind of theory behind it but also apply it practically through working at Churchill. Um, I then after that proceeded uh, to work uh, for a short time at the archive at Lloyd's Banking Group. And this was interesting because uh, it provided quite a contrast to working at Churchill as I gained, as Churchill obviously mainly had personal paper archives, it was very public facing. Whereas here I gained experience of working with an institutional archive, serving more its internal stakeholders and helping to, it helped me develop those kind of communication skills with internal stakeholders as well as new skills sorry, new skills uh, such as uh, digital preservation. And then following on from this, I moved on to the National Army Museum, which is where I've been now for around two years. So it sounds like you had a lot of good experiences to bring to your role at the National Army Museum. How do you spend an average day there? So an average day, I think if you ask anyone who works at NAM, they'd say there's uh, no such thing as an average day. But um, I can give a few examples of the different kind of stuff. So one day I could be, I tend to do a cataloging day, uh, maybe once or twice a week. And that could be working on recent acquisitions. Um, for example, I've recently been cataloging papers that were transferred to us from the Ministry of Defense. So cataloging them and making them um, accessible to our, to our users. Um, or I've got a couple of, ongoing large cataloging projects such as um, the we recently acquired the Coldstream Guards regimental archive so it's one of a number of regimental archives we hold in the collection um, and I've been working on cataloging and doing some preservation work on that to make that accessible um, what else another day it could be supervising in the reading room or working with our volunteers um, obviously since um, since lockdown and everything that's going on at the moment with COVID-19, we haven't had our volunteer programme up and running. But prior to that, we had quite a strong um, volunteer programme and it was really nice to work with them and supervise them on various projects. Um, 
Other days, it could be working on policies or procedures or outreach projects. We've recently been filming some promotional videos for the archive, which has been really good fun. Um, what else do I do? We, uh, I sit on the collections development group, which is basically um, the group that meets to decide what new uh, acquisitions are going to be acquired for the museum's permanent collection. So that involves researching um, archive collections and proposing them to the group for their approval. And then we acquire it for the collection. Uh, digitization projects that we've got on, well, proposals for new uh, digitization projects or small, digi uh, small digitization projects that we've got ongoing. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a bit of a taster of <laughs> how I spend different things I can uh, spend doing on an average day at the National Army Museum. Lots to keep you busy. Yeah, lots, lots to keep you busy. Obviously, it's, it's um, military-based material you're dealing with, but what kind of physical format does that all come in? Um, so, I'd say it's mainly analogue at the moment. Um, so, so, obviously, we've got the archive and the object collection. Um, and in the archive collection, there's around 500, over 500,000 items of largely analogue material, uh, which includes personal diaries, letters. Um, we've got a really extensive photograph collection, which is really incredible as well. Um, both like the personal photographs that soldiers have captured themselves as well as more official like regimental photograph albums and like formal group portraits and things like that, which are great resources for family history. Um, we also have stuff like enlistment books for some of the regimental collections we hold. Uh, we have court martial books, letter books. Um, we also have a, a very extensive uh, books and periodicals collection. Obviously, the books collection focuses on, on military history and the periodicals we have. I don't think we have them for every, every regiment. I don't want to make that claim, but we have, we have an, a, a very big collection of periodicals relating to um, the various regiments and corps and anything to do with British Army history basically. Um, we also have quite a large map collection as well. Um, and then we, we, so we do have a growing Born Digital collection, um, which mainly uh, at the moment consists of uh, digital photographs and audiovisual material. And uh, audiovisual material is mainly um, oral histories because uh, we run a lot of oral history projects in-house um, they're a very active part of the work we do at NAM. So, for example, we conducted a significant number of oral histories for the exhibition that's recently opened at NAM, the Photo Friend exhibition. Um, and so we, sorry, lost my train of thought there. So, yeah, so we have um, a lot of audiovisual material that is in born digital format. So I, I think that's going to continue to grow over the years. And also we are continuously digitizing material in our collection. So um, whilst we now, our oral history collections are mainly born digital, we also have a lot of, we had a lot of them that were on old cassette tapes and CDs. So we've recently um, undertaken a project to digitize all of those. And so that's great as it's gonna make them more accessible to our users and basically helps with the the long-term preservation of the material as well and it, it gives us a new resource 
to, to use for online content and in exhibitions and do some really amazing stuff with it. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a, a taster of the kind of physical material we hold in the collection. And who are your users? What type of people are they and what, what are they sort of researching? What are they looking for? Um, so we have quite a, a range of users coming to access the collection. So over my past couple of years working at the museum, there have been a, a range of different users accessing our collections. And this includes academics and historians who will come and use the collections for usually their own research projects or potentially for for modules that they're teaching on a university course we've had some of our content used for um online online um courses you can do about the history of the of the british army um which was great so yeah some of our archive collections and what with the wider object collection we used on that as examples uh to be used for sources whilst you were studying it. Um, we also have a lot of students come in to use the collection, obviously researching it for um, maybe their uh, dissertation or PhD. Um, we also have MOD staff and the army themselves come in and use the collection. Um, for example, they, we've had some of them come in to use historic maps and archives and photographs to help with army battlefield study tours that they run or for publications that they're going to um, publish in-house. Um, we also have a significant number of family history researchers using the collection. Um, so this might be accessing the physical collection. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have enlistment books and the photograph collections or letters and diaries that might relate to their relatives specifically. Um, I always find that really nice as it, a really nice part of my job actually is it, um, and it gives me great job satisfaction in that in that we can help members of the public access those personal items that give real insight into their relative lives and they get a real feel for their relatives wartime experience and just it kind of enriches their their family history and I always think that's really nice and um yeah and that also, a number of the family history researchers also come in to utilise our the digital resources we have on site, such as access to subscription sites such as Ancestry and Find My Past. So it's really nice that we can offer up those resources um, for them so that they don't have to pay for them or if they don't have access to a computer at home, they can come in and we can help them find out some more information on there. Um, um, we get quite a lot of well, not quite a lot. Uh, we get some donors uh, like to come in to have a look at the collections that have been deposited. Um, it might have been deposited by another family member or they might just want to come back to do a bit of family history research. So that's always really nice. And we also quite like to give them tours of the archive store to show them where the material that they've donated is going to be held. So that's really nice as well to have that kind of interaction with the donors and build up that relationship so they know where it's going to be housed long term how they can find it and that it's always going to be there for them to access essentially um we also have quite a lot of media um again i say quite a lot uh we have uh, some of the media come in uh that can sometimes be uh to use the physical space to do filming in or 
stuff such as undertaking photography research for stuff they want to include in a in a show they're producing or an article they're writing or something like that um oh i guess the other one would be uh, regimental and other military museums they sometimes uh, we get members of their staff come in to have a look at our collection to help inform their own collections so that's uh, and vice versa that's quite a nice relationship that's built up with the network of re regimental museums uh, and the fact we have all this kind of shared material between us um, is, is quite nice as well. Yeah that's a, a really wide nice selection of users to, to be catering to but it mm, must be I, oh, hard to take that into account sort of when you're I suppose when you're putting exhibitions together, but also when you're expanding the collection and thinking about what you should um, curate. Yeah, that it is, but also, because obviously with things like um, family history research, it's, it's obviously hard because you can't, we'd obviously love to be able to take everything, but you can't take, take everything with the potential that someone might want to research it somewhere down the line. So we always, it's tricky to know what future research needs are going to be. So we just kind of, we have our collections development policy, which kind of informs what we're collecting at the moment. And we're always kind of looking at that and thinking if there's any other areas that we could be collecting in. And obviously content, we always, we've tried recently, especially to do focus a bit more on contemporary collecting um, and, the army's involvement in contemporary uh, in more recent conflicts but also the army's work at home as well so we're constantly thinking about different ways in which we can develop the collection and also um looking at the collections development policy and whether we're we're missing whether any subject areas are missing or things like that and we have quite an active um collecting team at the museum so we're always um on looking out at auctions and we get quite regular contact from donors about collections that they they'd like to offer us and stuff like that so yeah i'd say it is something we're aware of but we we are constantly trying to to think of what researchers future researchers would want to use and also how it fits in with the collection we want to make sure we've got a real str strong areas in our collection so that if they're re researching a particular subject they know they can come to us and find that material or they know that we've got a good collection of material for that subject if that makes sense mm -hmm. what period does your collection cover um so it's it covers from the the civil war right through to the present day um it hasn't always been that case it used to i'm not sure exactly what date it changed but um it used to be that it would collect up to the boer war but then in the past like 20 years that has shifted and so now we collect everything up to the present day so we expanded our collections to include first world war second world war and then we've also got um quite good collections on of material from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan as well so um, this I'd say the strength of the collection does lie kind of um, in earlier conflicts like the Boer War Crimean War um, Peninsula Wars and stuff like that but over over the past 20 years or so we have really developed those those 20th century collections as well what would you say are the particular challenges you come across um, when working with the museum archive? 
Um, okay, so I'd say the, the first thing that comes to mind with that is that I'm the only archivist in the collections division at the museum. So this composed challenges at times in the sense that there's, there's only one of me. And so there's, there's a lot of projects that I'd like to be working on. Um, lots of work, always lots of work to get done. Um, but at the end of the day, there's only one of me. So I have to prior, I, I've kind of learned the importance of time management and prioritization and kind of working out which, which projects are the priority for that time. And also at sometimes you, you just have to say no to some stuff as you can't do it all. And I've, I, I really struggled with that at first because I really like saying, yeah, like I, I like taking on new projects and I like being involved in, in lots of different stuff, but I had to, yeah, I've, I've had to learn to prioritize and say no to some things. Um, although I'd say on the flip side of that, being the only archivist means I have had a huge amount of opportunities to work on different projects at the museum and Kind of make the role my own which has been really nice um and also i do have a, a colleague at the museum who is the records manager and institutional archivist for the institutional archive so it's nice that that they're there and we can always bounce ideas off each other when it comes to to archive issues um so yeah i'd say that and probably also that the, the managing an archive collection within a wider museum collection if that makes sense so prior to working at at the national army museum i'd always worked in standalone archives um so it's been an interesting challenge working within the context of a museum so i've learned um a lot about museum standards and how a collection has been managed an archive collection has been managed within this context so it's been uh, an interesting learning curve in like trying to balance the kind of different the museum standards archive standards and the ways of working within that and also um it's in a positive way it's it's shown that there's a different exposure that archive co collections can get with being in a museum and the collaborative work that can be done with them across the, the departments in the museum, especially at the National Army Museum, because we're quite a small team. We all kind of rally together and work together. And it's really, it's, that's a really nice aspect of it. Like an army itself. Then. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say so. <laughs> if you have to say no to a lot of things, but is there anything you would like to say yes to? What, what for the future would you really want to do? Oh, that's tricky. I would, um, I'd say oh, there's a couple of things, I think. So we're st I'm doing a bit of it already, but I really want to take the, take, take opportunities to really talk about our collection and get it out there and promote it. And so doing things like this podcast and doing things uh, like the filming promote, like videos about the archive collections. But um, in the past, I think I always kind of shied away from that because I'm, I'm not huge. I'm not a big fan of public speaking and I, I tend to get a bit nervous with it, but I'd really, I know how important it is to, to talk about the collection and get it out there and get people in and using it and so I'd really like the opportunity to to do so any opportunities that come along I'm gonna say yes to basically because I want to to challenge both myself but also 
um, get the collection out there more and stuff like doing talks and tours of the, uh, of the archive store, um, anything that can engage new or get existing users to re-engage with the collections and come and use them. I think that's, that's something I'd really like to, to work on more. And just thinking, I, I really like thinking up new ways to get people in and like new and fun ways like thinking of ways to engage like school groups or educational groups with the collections and things like that that's something I'd like to to do as well yeah I definitely think more doing more outreach and kind of speaking speaking out and promoting the archive more yeah it's using to a wider audience because yeah you're very passionate and it's nice <laughs> to share that what is your favorite item in the collection? I always find that such a tricky question where, wherever I've worked, whenever people ask me that. Um, so I think I'm going to have to give multiple, multiple <laughs> answers to this one. <laughs> but um, so one of the aspects of our collection that I find most interesting and most captivating is the, the personal stories that are captured in, in the material we hold in particular the the personal letters and diaries that were written by soldiers um serving in wartime and on the front line and kind of really um capturing their their experience their emotions at the time um and through them you you really you can uncover the experience of the soldiers from from collections that we hold from of privates right through to generals and both not just in wartime but also in peacetime um we have it's not just obviously a lot of it is during conflict but we also have quite extensive collections that um look at soldiers in peacetime but in particular there's so there's a collection of letters that i actually uncovered earlier this year when researching letters for the ve day anniversary and these were letters written by a, a gentleman called Lance Corporal Booth, um, and he served in the tank regiment. So they were letters he wrote to his parents. Uh, he, I think there's around 200 or 300 letters in total. Um, and they, so they were written throughout the, throughout the Second World War, and they really cover a range of subjects, uh, generally like daily updates on his, on his life in wartime, wherever he's based at the time. Um, stuff about rations and 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 kind of socializing with other soldiers as well as um his own person his personal interest in films which really which I think's really nice it comes across in the films he talk sorry in the letters he talks a lot about um whether they've been able to see any films where where they are or um I think membership to the to the British Film Institute at one point as well um he also touches on spending christmas away from home and then also onto subjects reflecting on the impact of war. And I think he has a really emotive and eloquent way of writing that I just, I don't know, I, it really, really touched me when I was reading them. And so in particular, there's, there's a letter he wrote on uh, VE Day and he was in Hamburg um, at the time. And I feel like it's really captured it. And um, so he says, um, it's near 
I think this is near the start of the letter he writes this. So he says, well, the war ended and I really can't describe what my feelings were or are now, for they, they're still rather tangled. Whether everyone was the same, I don't know. And I sp suppose some people can sort of accept things at their face value without needing any mental readjustment. So perhaps the celebrations on VE night were genuine enough and it was just my state of mind that made me think them not spontaneous, but a little forced and done because it seemed to be the thing to do. I just think, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's very reflective and he's clearly a bit confused with how he's feeling and how he should be feeling. And so, I don't know, I just, I, yeah, I really liked that letter and his just, his style of writing. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's one of my favorite, I think his whole series of letters um, are, is one of my favorite items, but that particular letter I thought was, was really nice. Um, and then there's also a particular photograph that comes to mind. I came across it um, the other day. It's in an album of photographs taken by a photographer called Roger Fenton. And um, he's attributed with being one of the first wartime photographers. He traveled out to the Crimea to capture photographs during the, um, during the Crimean War. And even had like a, a traveling photographic van out with him there to move around and capture what was going on. Um, but there's one specific photograph um, of a lady called Fanny Doubly. And I think that's how you pronounce her surname. I'm not 100%. But she is on horseback. And her husband, Captain Henry Doubley, um, who was a paymaster, I think, in the 8th Hussars, he stood next to her. And it's just a really striking image. But it also prompted me to um, look into Fanny Doubley and it uncover her this fascinating well there's already been a lot written on her but it, it was a fascinating story when I when I did a bit of research she basically accompanied her husband to the Crimea and um was the only officer's wife to remain out there throughout the campaign I'm not sure whether they wanted her to or not but um she stayed there and she witnessed um events such as the battle of B Balaclava uh, the charge of the light brigade and she kept a journal throughout her whole time there which was actually pub like it was published at the time in 1855. It provides a it, such unique insight into her life and her experiences alongside the army out there in the Crimea. And I think I found a quote saying she's been described as a splendid rider, witty, ambitious, daring, lively, loquacious, and gregarious. And I just thought it's um yeah, it's just such a. a she sounds like such a fascinating character and I haven't actually got round to reading the journal yet, but that's what I, I want to do next to find out more about her and her experiences out there. Yeah, I think there's more, but they're, they're two that kind of stick in my mind. So what kind of um, material is accessible for the general public, say at the moment? So what's available online since you can't necessarily go into the reading room? Um, so available online, we have on our own website, we have what's called our online collection. And that is where all of our digitized content or um, if it's bonded short gets put on 
um, but it, it does cover the whole collection. So it's not just um, archive or photograph specific. It includes any like of our object collection that's been digitized as well. So you can search, use key search terms or search for individual, search by individual, search by uh, conflict, search by uh, regiment on there and it will bring up everything that we've digitized to link to that. Um, we also have our stories section on our website, which is um, articles which have been researched uh, by members of the members of staff at the museum on specific topics, and they will have um, utilised the archive collections to. So that reminds me when we were talking about access to the collections. Actually, staff access to the collections is quite a. Um, it's quite a big user group. So um, we actively encourage um, staff to come in and use the archive collections for like articles that they're writing both in-house and for um, external publications, for inclusion in exhibitions. Uh, again, both ones the museum's putting on and ones that um, loaning out to other museums um, or for like media pieces they're doing. So yeah, we that's another way we like to well, obviously we have such a great resource there that staff love to use it, but also it's a great way of getting the, the archive collections out there. Um, sorry, I went off point there. So um, they, yeah, that's another way. So they might include snippets of archives on there or they might digitize um, part of the collection specifically for a story that's being written. Um, there's also some material uh, on ancestry. Um, we took a collection of um, from the Ministry of Defence of soldiers' effects records. So that's that's a extremely useful family history resource, and that's all available on ancestry. Um, we also have the disbanded Irish regiments enlistment books, um, and they're all accessible on our website, which is another great family history resource. And they're resource and they were all transcribed so they're all accessible um online as well um so our, as i said our oral history collections have all been digitized and um a lot of the recent ones were born digital as well so although we currently don't have them hosted on our website if anyone does want access to them remotely we can provide access to those um, as well at the moment because usually we'd encourage them to come into the reading room and access them there but as um, we can't provide that service at the moment we in we encourage users to to get in touch because also oral histories are quite an easy one to provide access to but also if we do have something digitized that isn't online um, we can also provide access to that remotely and um, when staff are, are back in the museum we can do reprographics orders so we can do a kind of copying on demand service there are some restrictions around like amount you can order and stuff like that so that's another way in which we can provide remote access if users can't come in to use the collections um i think that's that's mostly it. I think like longer term, we would, we would like to, to do some more digitization projects and get more of our collections, archive collections accessible um, online. I think that would be, but it's, it's all about striking the balance between providing digital access, but also we still like to get users coming in through the door and using the collections physically. There's something about seeing a collection in its physical format that you can't 
quite replicate online. So I think, yeah, it's about striking the, the balance between the two. So if your uh, grandpa fought in one of the world wars, chances are he's in your collection somewhere. He could be. It's, we, don't, we don't like to make that promise because it it's, um, I think, especially with all the regimental collect, museums and collections, it's also like the potential that they, they might not be in our collection, but they could be in their collection. Um, or sometimes, sadly, we, do, we don't hold the material, but there are other places that we can point our researchers to like the National Archives obviously have the the official records and the official enlistment and service records and things like that and the war dot even if you can't find specific information relating to your relative the the war diaries that are held at the National Archives are a, a great resource to kind of if you know what unit they were in to get a sense of where they were what was going on what they were doing at on any given day during during um i think the first world war ones are all available online i'm not too sure and the second world war ones i think so yeah that so we we always like to um be able to to point family history researchers in in onto somewhere where they can potentially hopefully find some information if they can't find it in our collection thank you for joining us today tasha it's been really um it's been really a pleasure hearing about your enthusiasm for this collection and how much work <laughs> and care you're, you're putting into it. Um, I hope that you manage to kind of get people in again once this is all over and, and they can sort of, uh, as you say, get in touch with the actual tangible objects and get a sense of the real lives behind these um, complex military stories and campaigns. Yeah, I, yeah, I really hope so too. Because I think the the thing we always like to say about the the archive collections at NAM, it's kind of like an, an official tagline is that they the collections there tell the soldier's story, and that's really the kind of the the message we want to get out. You can really through accessing our collections uncover um, these really un, unique stories of. of soldiers serving from from the the civil war right through to the present day so yeah it, it'll be lovely when we can get get researchers back in and, and using the collections thank you very much natasha for your time today thank you cheers <laughs>